0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Good morning. How are we? Good. Good, good. My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I know yesterday was a tough day for some in our state, so I apologize. I'm sorry. Uh, Glad you're here this morning to hear the good news of Jesus. Uh, We are teaching through major events in the life of David, and uh, two weeks ago we hit a landmine when we saw that the best of us, the the man who killed Goliath by faith and by the same faith refused to kill Saul when he had the chance. This man, after God's own heart, uh, just completely blew up his own life. And he committed sexual assault and murder, uh, ruined many lives in the process, and it was just absolutely devastating. And then last week, we got the great news that God doesn't quit on David despite his massive failure. God sends Nathan to pursue and confront. And David repents and writes Psalm 51, this beautiful treatise on sin and God's grace. And and yet, despite his repentance, David's failure with Bathsheba was not his only arena of failure. Uh, Today, we're actually going to look at David's relationship with his kids, with his children. It is also pretty disastrous unfortunately. So go ahead and grab a Bible, go to Second Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel 13. While you're flipping there, I want to set up a few things for us this morning. Uh, the first thing is that the Old Testament, the, the section that we're studying during the series, is largely descriptive rather than prescriptive. What I mean by that is it describes real people and families and historical events, but it, much of it doesn't necessarily tell us what to do. The New Testament, by contrast, has a lot of uh, instruction. It tells us what to do. It's prescriptive, which means with much of the Old Testament, we have to interpret based off uh, the final result or fruit, whether we're reading a positive description to emulate or a negative one to avoid. So we ask the question, does it lead to good fruit and God's blessing, or does it lead to bad fruit and chaos? This is why it's, it's largely descriptive. This is also why the argument, but there's polygamy in the Bible, isn't a good argument. Yes, polygamy is in the Bible, and time after time it leads to drama and chaos and family breakdown. It's not being celebrated as ideal, it's being lamented. So in David's relationship with his kids, we get negative descriptive that we can use to draw out some biblical principles to apply to our lives. And then secondly, to fully understand the breakdown, we need to know God's design for families. So I have a a little uh, image for you here. Uh, This is God's intended design for families. All parents pass things down to their children. So the question is not if but what we are passing down. And God's intent was for families to pass down wisdom and love and grace and discipline from each generation to the next, grandparents to parents to kids, telling of God's great works and faithfulness and creating this beautiful cascading waterfall of grace and goodness. But sin has ruined the spiritual inheritance of families, and instead of this beautiful waterfall, uh, generational sin and foolishness and pain are actually mixed in with whatever good is handed down. So this is the reality that we find ourselves with, with all of that red mixed into the waterfall that's cascading down from generation to generation. So some of you inherited all kinds of pain, and you need to know that that wasn't God's intended design. And others of you have incredible, grace-filled, godly families where you struggle to find anything that was wrong with them. That's a massive blessing. But we all inherit sin and pain and foolishness through our bloodline just to varying degrees and varying forms. This just happens through nature and nurture. Now, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. And there's no caveat in there. It doesn't say honor them as long as they were rock stars. It just says honor them. So we should take that seriously if we aren't. Our culture doesn't always take that seriously that we should honor our parents. Many of them did the best that they could, and we should spend some time on the good our families have passed down to us. The goal is not for us to become a cynical millennial who kind of had it made, but still foolishly blames everything bad on their life and their parents. That's not the goal here. But even from a framework of honoring them, we can still recognize the negative things they pass down to us. The sin patterns, the the pain, the foolishness that somehow just oozes out of you. One quote that I love about this, I think this is so good. Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Isn't that good? That's a killer quote right there. Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa and grandma and mom and dad, they live in your bones. This is oversimplified, but it may be helpful to think of maybe one word that you might have inherited from those who came before you, from your mom, your dad, your your grandma, your grandpa. For, For some of you, it's anger. For others, it will be depression, fear, apathy, disengagement, bitterness, dishonesty, Jealousy, pettiness, self loathing, pride. This exercise may help some of you go right up your family tree and just go boom, 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 boom. Oh gosh, now understand me. (laughs) Grandpa really does live in my bones after all. But the goal for all of us is to reduce the red waterfall of pain and foolishness and increase the good waterfall of grace and wisdom for us to be the place where generational sin stops and generational blessings start. So today we're going to zoom in on a particularly troubling story with David's children. And uh, for David as a father, we're about to see some major breakdowns and some very troubling things get passed down. So for those of you who are parenting, who are planning to parent someday, we can learn some practical things for our lives here. And for all of us, we might see some ways our parents didn't quite nail it and how that's affected us, and we'll address that at the end. So, before we get started reading the passage, I'd love to pray for our time today. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the gift of gathering this morning with your people. Um, thanks for the opportunity to open up your Word and look at um, what you have to say about life. And I know that this morning's content will be will be difficult for some, and uh, that many of us have have inherited some uh, some red, some some waterfall uh, that isn't quite as good. Um, And I know we're going to look at an example in David's life where we see that on crystal clear display, and I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us and uh, equip us with your truth this morning, Uh, that you would uh, set us free with the hope that uh, you can break any generational sin, Uh, that nothing is more powerful than your grace, Um, and that you are at work to uh, bring us into your family uh, and teach us how to stop uh, the red waterfalls that we've inherited. So I pray for your grace and your mercy this morning. We all need it. I pray for your spirit to speak in ways that only your spirit can. We love you. Amen. All right, let's get right into the story. 2 Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Problem here, Amnon loves Tamar, his half-sister, uh, this is not brotherly love. This is sensual desire. He wants her. And 1 Chronicles 3 actually tells us that David had 19 sons and one daughter by at least eight wives, and more sons and daughters by his concubines. This is problem number one. Too many baby mamas, okay? Too many leads to breakdown all sorts of other family problems. Verse two, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Doesn't just want her, he's lovesick. Verse three, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So Amnon's crafty cousin notices something is wrong and presses him to figure out what. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat bread, eat it from her hand. So on the surface, this seems strange, but the true genius of Jonadab's plan is he tricks David into leveraging his fatherly and kingly authority to put his own daughter in harm's way. Verse 6, So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. It appears to be just a caring dad here, but as we'll find out later, there are some deep-seated issues with David's heart toward his sons. Verse 8, So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was laying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Like two weeks ago with Bathsheba, there's an abuse of power here. No one stops to say, wait, this doesn't seem right. As David's oldest son, Amnon is the future king, so they just obey him. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and she made that she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Remember the craftiness of Jonadab's plan. Uh, David, her dad, and the king told her to take care of Amnon. She doesn't really have options here. She's stuck. Verse 11. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, "'Come lie with me, my sister.'" She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So this is just utterly wicked and sickening. He has no ability to hear her pleas, no recognition that she's an image bearer of God or his sister, just wants her, so he takes her and violates her. So for those of you who relate to Tamar on a personal level, level, I am beyond sorry. I would encourage you to go back to our sermon from two weeks ago when we addressed sexual sin and sexual assault more in depth I'd also encourage a book called Rid of My Disgrace. Uh, It's actually written by victims of sexual assault, to victims of sexual assault, and it's actually based on this passage where she says, where could I go with my disgrace? Where could I carry my shame? But for all of us, I want to make sure we're connecting the dots of the larger story here because uh, back in 2 Samuel 11 is when David forces himself on Bathsheba and then in the cover-up murders her husband Uriah. Uh, chapter 12 is what, when Nathan confronts him, uh, what we talked about last week. And here we are in 2 Samuel 13, just one chapter later, and David's son Amnon is raping his half-sister Tamar. And certainly some time passes there. David and Bathsheba lose a child and then give birth to Solomon and David wins a war. But even with all of that time lapse, the Bible is clearly connecting how quickly the effects of David's sin have generational impact on his children's lives. Chapter after chapter. And it keeps going bad from here. Amnon's so-called love for his sister turns to hatred as he's just washed over with shame. He's used his strength in a way that exposes his deepest insecurity and brokenness and emptiness. And like his father, Amnon can't deal with the consequences of his actions. So he doesn't own it and he doesn't walk in the light. He just tries to get rid of it. And he gets others to do his dirty work for him. This is generational sin at its clearest. This is the red waterfall coursing through generations. Back back up in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So, two different responses from Absalom and David. David is very angry, which is great and appropriate. He should be. uh, But he does nothing in response. Some manuscripts actually add that he didn't do anything. By contrast, Absalom's anger is put into action. He actually welcomes his sister into his house, and he secretly plots revenge against Amnon. And the next verses tell us he waits two full years for this incident to fade in anyone's mind, and then he actually tricks David into sending Amnon into the woods with him, and there he gets him drunk and has him murdered. So he handles the situation in an unrighteous manner, but his heart is right that something has to be done. And the whole thing is just an utter tragedy. David's uh, daughter is raped. His third son murders his firstborn. Absalom then flees into hiding and is estranged from his father for five years. And then he attempts to steal the throne from his father that he no longer respects. And David ends up running from Absalom for the last third of his life. So in the first season of his life, he's always on the run from Saul trying to kill him. Now he ends up running from his own son who's trying to kill him. And eventually, Absalom is killed. But it's a miserable, tragic ending for the most celebrated king in Israel's history. For the man after God's own heart. So in lot of this, I just want to give us a few things that, that form a framework for how to think through some of the fails that we see here in David. I have a few insight and applications for us. The first one is this. Parents have to steer their child's character for their long-term good. Parents have to steal, steer their child's character for their long-term good. And this requires an enormous amount of time and energy and effort. You guys who are parents in the room know that parenting is incredibly difficult. Like, do you know how much effort it takes to take a toddler and work toward that toddler being a decent human being? It takes a lot. I know that because whenever you see a kid freaking out at Target, you walk away and you're glad you don't have to deal with it, right? It's like, man, I don't have to deal with that. It's an enormous amount of responsibility and work to shape the direction of a child's character. This is why so many of us are tired all of the time. One of my friends says that his favorite thing about his kid's bedtime is that he gets a short break from constantly making decisions about how to respond to their behavior. Just no decisions for the next two hours. It's glorious. And there are a lot of important details we don't know exactly in this story, but here's what we know for sure. In Amnon's life... He fails miserably. He's completely overwhelmed by his sinful desire. He loses any sense of self control and has this unbelievably huge uh, sin against his sister. Let's call it this big X in his life. I have a little chart the big X, the incident. And when that happens, David does nothing, he doesn't step in, he doesn't engage. He gets mad, but he doesn't correct. He does not discipline his son. And this isn't a one-time thing. Later in 1 Kings 1, verse 6, when his son Adonijah is trying to overthrow his throne, literally usurping his authority, it says this. have this on the screen too. David had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? We don't know for sure about Amnon, but at least in Adonijah's life, David never questioned him because he did not want to displease him. This was a recurring theme in David's life. And too many parents are only focused on reactive discipline when the X happens. Like, what do we do now? How do we engage? But biblically, proactive engagement and discipline before the X is just as, if not more important than the reactive part. Hebrews 12 gives us some rich insight into all this. This will be on the screen. Hebrews 12, starting with verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we have two very different words here used for discipline and chastise or punish. The Greek word translated discipline is uh, padeo, which means to train, teach, instruct, or correct. The Greek word translated chastise, mastigu, means to punish or scourge. So in oversimplified terms, the training and teaching and instruction are happening before the X happens to try to keep the X from happening. And when the X does happen, that's when the chastisement or punishment comes, to keep it from happening again and again in worse ways, all for our good and the shaping of our character. Picking back up in verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected So God's heart and discipline is about shaping us for a desired goal, and that is holiness. Like verse 10 says, God is disciplining us so that we will be free from all of the sin and foolishness inside of us that wrecks our lives and the lives of others. He's trying to break the red waterfall that comes all the way from Adam. And it doesn't feel pleasant in the moment, but it leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. His heart is to teach you how to live in his family instead of the family you grew up in. And just like your kids might feel in the moment of consequences or discipline, you might be like, this doesn't feel very loving. But in reality, it's the most loving thing he could possibly do for you, and it means you are his child. In the same way as parents, we are to have a long-term vision of what kind of adults we are training our kids to be. A vision that informs every parenting decision along the way. That's what David missed. He was unwilling to displease his sons temporarily for their long-term good. And just to be clear, parents can be utterly incredible and their kids can still do unthinkable things. So it's not at all a one-to-one. And we don't have clear evidence that David's parenting failures contributed to raising a son who would rape his half-sister, but we do have evidence that he didn't do anything about it. And we do have evidence that he didn't want to do anything that would displease his sons. And very broadly, generally speaking, kids don't turn into bullies or rapists or viciously mean teenage girls overnight magically but arrive there over time with sin indwelling them from birth and sometimes partially due to their parents' disengagement and refusal to train and discipline the smaller things that lead up to the bigger things. So this text would indicate for us that an undisciplined child grows up to be a dangerous adult. An undisciplined child grows up to be a dangerous adult adult. We often lack the foresight in our culture to see that, but it is true. Just like Amnon, kids who are undisciplined have an inability to deny their urge for instant gratification. They are used to using whatever means necessary to get what they want. It's just that at 17 or 20, they can cause a lot more damage than they could at three when their misbehavior and tantrums were at least a little bit cute. Not only that, but an undisciplined child also grows up to be a disliked adult. One non-Christian book I read talked about how, as a parent, one of your jobs is to raise a child that you like being around. And this was not a selfish or facetious argument. The argument is, if you raise a child that you like, the odds are his peers or her peers and superiors are going to like them as well. And they're going to be set up for success in life. And the author says that no one else on this earth is going to like your kid more than you do. So if you don't train them properly, you are setting them up to be disliked and lonely and miserable. To not have any friends and not be able to hold a job. Because the punishment that other people dole out on their misbehavior and immaturity is going to be far worse than what you would have done. So refusing to displease them and train their character out of some misguided sense of love is actually incredibly unloving. I think about that when I read that David didn't do anything in response to Amnon. So his other son, Absalom, said, well, I'll kill him then. I'll kill him. David's lack of action led to a more extreme response by someone else. And it's interesting to note that the two sons of David, we are specifically told he doesn't discipline. Amnon and Adonijah both end up murdered. And this story is scary for me because I see David's lack of response in some of us, albeit in smaller ways typically. There are some uncomfortable similarities I notice between David's issues with his sons and our specific culture's issues, meaning us in this room and those I've pastored at our downtown church. Because David's issue was that he didn't want to displease his sons. He wanted them to have it easy and not rock the boat. He had a misguided love for his sons that led him to not step in and engage and discipline and shape his kids' characters in the ways that he should have. And I think that we too often don't want to displease our kids for the short term, even when it's for the shaping of their character and long-term good either because we have a misguided love for them or because we don't connect the dots of what their current behavior will turn into in 10 years, or because it's just easier not to. It's so much easier not to. In our family milestones program, we talk about a spectrum in parenting that goes from sinfully harsh on one side to sinfully lenient on the other side. And we say that there's this nice green pasture in the middle for Christians just nice spectrum. But one of the things we've been talking about is that in our context, again, it may be different in other contexts, even here in our area or state, but it seems like in our context, the vast majority of people really are only afraid of being too harsh, as if that's the only danger that we're aware of with our kids. We don't want to be too strict or too overbearing, so we back up away from that. And we back up away from that even further. And suddenly we might be falling off a cliff on the other side. And I might literally fall off that cliff if I keep walking. And not even know it. Not even be aware of it. Not even know that it's there. We're so afraid of being too harsh that we may inadvertently go off the rails on the other side by not shaping and forming their character through training and discipline. There's a church in Greenville that uh, we steal stuff from sometimes. Sometimes. Because that's what pastors do—we steal stuff. And they have this parenting chart. I think is is very, very insightful. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. This is the way that parenting is supposed to work. They say. I call it the parenting roller coaster. Is that at a young age we give our kids very little freedom and choices to help train them in self mastery and humility, and as they get older, their freedom increases as they are able to handle it maturely. So they say that zero to six is a phase they call establishing authority. That's the driving goal for this stage. Of course, that's not the only thing. Of course you love and snuggle and tickle them. That all goes without saying. But the baseline thing you're trying to accomplish here is that your authority over them is established, that they trust you and respect you and listen to you. This is their language, not mine, okay? But uh, they say the goal here is literally, quote, first-time obedience with a happy heart. And when I heard that, I was like, can you come to my house, please? (laughs) Please, come to my house. Their point is that if, if a child doesn't learn how to truly and genuinely respect authority by the age of six, they maybe never will. And if they don't submit and listen to you, They are not set up to submit and listen to God as authority. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, I'll just make them respect my authority when they're 15, when it really matters. That is not how this works. So in the early stages, temper tantrums are a child's way of jockeying for authority or demanding their own way. And you have to establish your authority over them and not allow them to manipulate you with their behavior or tantrums. Guys, we have to resist the reign of kindergarten in our homes. <laughs> have to resist kindergarchy. The kids love it, but it's not good for them. This resistance is not easy, and depending on the child, it can be really, really not easy. But you can do it. You are much older than them and smarter than them and more cunning than them. And I believe you're more stubborn than them, okay? I believe you can do it. And in this, we are laying a foundation for the rest of their life, for them to have a heart that submits to authority and learns to trust that mommy or daddy or God is actually smarter than them and worth listening to. And if they don't learn how to do this with you, they are in a world of trouble later on. The next stage, 7 to 13, they call developing responsibility. Developing responsibility. This is where you give them weight to carry. You give them tasks that overwhelm them so they realize they still have things to learn. One of the pastors said that you know his son in this stage got really, really good at video games. And because he was so good at video games, he thought he, his dad was an idiot <laughs> and didn't know how to do anything. So he was like, I'm going to give you other things that you don't know how to do. <laughs> I'm going to give you things to do that you can't do. And they say, trust me, the last thing you want is for other 13-year-olds to raise your 13-year-olds. It's a horrible idea. Ideally, you want them to instead to learn that their friends, other 13-year-olds, are probably idiots. (laughs) And that you are actually way smarter than their friends. And that you know things about dating and sex and substances and spirituality and all of the things. And then the last stage, 14 to 18, is called facilitating independence, where you're giving them more and more freedom to launch them out as healthy, mature adults. And they say that what comes after this entire chart over there on the right is friends. That's when you can be friends where you start to transition into being friends with a mature adult child. So they say you should not think of the word friend at any point down here. That is not the goal. This is all so that you can shape and fashion your child into the type of adult that you would want to be friends with. And if you're trying to be friends with your six-year-old, you have this all backwards. The goal is that you are a parent who your child wants to call and ask for wisdom when they're 30. Not one who thinks you're cool when they're six, because you let them do whatever they want. And after showing this first chart, they say the problem is that in our culture, because we have a similar issue David did, and we don't want to displease our kids, we actually do the opposite. Here's what they say we do in our culture. Go ahead. (laughs) There you go. There you go. We do the opposite in our culture. What most American parents do is start with maximum freedom. So when our kids are two or three, we let them do whatever they want for the most part. We follow them around and make sure they don't kill themselves. But other than that, we just let them run the show, decide what they want to do, give them an overwhelming amount of options. Because when they're this young, there's only, there's only so much damage they can do, right? If you've kid-proofed your house, there's only so much damage they can do. So we let two-year-olds decide what time they go to bed and run ourselves into the ground with exhaustion. We let five-year-olds dictate every meal we eat. We think in order to be loving parents, we have to give them choices in everything. But too much freedom is actually too much for them to handle, and it actually causes anxiety in them. Kids are not mature enough to handle endless options and possibilities. They will accept them and maybe even demand them, but they can't. Handle it. A three-year-old does not know what time they need to go to bed. You know, because they're three. They need you to make a plan to make them go to bed when they need to. And then somewhere in stage two, parents realize, wait a second, my kid's pushing back on me all the time now. They don't respect me. They don't obey me or listen to me. I wonder why. Maybe we need to rein this in a bit. We lack a lot of foresight in parenting. We fail to realize, oh, I've actually been training my child to not listen to me for 10 years. No wonder they don't listen to me now. And if your kids are spaced out enough when they're really young, you can kind of manage their misbehavior. It can at times be kind of cute, at least to you. So you just follow them around and keep them from killing themselves. And you're like, oh, look at him. He doesn't listen to anything I say, but he's kind of cute, right? But then they get to stage two and their misbehavior isn't quite as cute. It starts to smell bad, just like their clothes do, right? And then by stage three, the teenager is wild and rebellious. And the parent is panicking, trying to hit the brakes. And they clamp down on all of the freedoms, take it all back. But that doesn't work. It causes so much tension and confusion because the child knows at this point they should be growing into the maximum amount of freedom and being released into the world. But you can't let them because you've realized they aren't trustworthy. And when I heard all this for the first time, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. This explains so much this church is a little older than we are in our Midtown churches, and they say that they constantly have parents bring them a 16-year-old who was hitting a big X in their life and saying, here, please fix my child. This is terrible. They won't listen, and they have to look at the parents and say, I'm sorry, but we can't fix this. We can work towards change, but you have 16 years worth of training here So change is going to come really slow. So we have to, with great effort, steer the direction of our child's character. And we will not do this perfectly. I most certainly haven't. But it is unspeakably important for their long-term good for us to try our absolute hardest, to think biblically and not just react to the cultural voices we hear to train our kids before the X's happen in their lives and then discipline appropriately when they do, just like God does for us. And the goal in all of this is actually something that's out of your control. Our hope is someday that we would launch kids out into the world who love Jesus, who respect us and God, who submit to him and would choose to seek out our advice, that when their life is going badly, they would choose to call us. And we don't get to control that, but we can help make it more likely by engaging and staying involved in all of this, by thinking hard about the future person we want them to be and doing everything we can to get them there. Second insight, this would be the last one. Parents have to set an example to follow. Parents have to set an example to follow. Again, all of us are passing down something and you've got to realize you're giving your kids more than a financial inheritance, more than their genetics. You are also giving them a spiritual inheritance, for better or for worse. We see David pass down his sin to his kids in tragic ways. We are all passing down something, one of our favorite leadership quotes that applies very much to parenting uh, comes from Wayne Cordero. He said, you can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You reproduce who you are. There's a reason why we have phrases like the apple doesn't fall from the, far from the tree. Right? That's certainly the case for Amnon and David as we've seen today. Just like his dad, Amnon is controlled by his sinful sexual desires He takes those desires out on a woman who doesn't have a choice, and then he can't deal with it after the fact, like father, like son. So it's not just that we pass down what we do, we pass down who we are. We pass down spiritual baggage, attitudes, perspectives. Who you are when no one is watching is impacting your kids in a spiritual way that's hard to describe, but very real nonetheless. Your attitude toward God is caught more than it is taught. Or we might put it this way, Lord willing, Jesus will live in your kid's heart, but you will live in their bones. You will live in their bones. And this is the hardest thing to deal with because even if you're working your absolute hardest and trying your best to pass down a waterfall of God's grace and wisdom and love, we're all still passing down a mixture. And if you think you're not, come talk to me when you're 60 and we'll see how that turned out for you. Every single one of us passed down some t- sin tendencies to our kids and the only, only the categories and degrees are up for debate that's it. You could even say it's not all your fault, and you wouldn't be totally wrong about that. We've all been affected in many ways, but we still own our own sin. Your dad's sin or mom's sin is not an excuse for your sin. It may help explain it, but it does not in any way excuse it. So as Christians, the way we give our kids an example to follow is we model what it looks like to follow and trust Jesus. We model what it looks like to trust him even when it's not easy, to grow to be a non-anxious presence by the power of God's Spirit producing supernatural spiritual fruit in you, and by openly confessing and repenting in front of our kids and encouraging them not to follow in your wayward footsteps. And kids catch their parents doing all sorts of things all the time. We need for our kids to catch us being Christians. And our kids to catch us reading our Bibles and praying. And to show them that we are seeking and praying for Jesus to stop the brokenness in our waterfall. So earlier I mentioned the exercise of, of thinking about your parents and grandparents and maybe picking the one word or, of sin or pain or brokenness that was passed on to you somehow through them. Now I want you to play that out 20 or 30 years down the road for those of you who are parents in the room, and think about your kids listening to this sermon then. What might the red waterfall from you to them potentially look like? What word do you think they might pick for you in 20 or 30 years? Anxiety, manipulation, fear, cynicism, anger, unpredictability, Apathy, laziness, gossip, duplicity, pride, addiction. And that's a heavy weight to think about. And the reality is that you are a sinner raising other sinners, and there will be things you pass along that you rather wish you would not have. But as with all sin, that reality is not as real as the reality of grace. Amen? And that grace breaks into our family lineages, into our waterfalls, in powerful and mighty ways. And every way that you fail as a parent, God is a perfect father whose son has died to redeem all of your parenting fails. So in Jesus, we can draw near to the throne of grace and ask God to redeem the waterfall that's coming from you to your kids. Because Jesus redeems us from the curse of sin that runs through our veins and family histories all the way back to Adam. He breaks the chains of sin that want to ruin our families for generations. And some of you need to hear the words, hey, you might look like your father, but you are not your father. You are not destined to duplicate his mistakes. You are not your mother. You do not have to turn out just like she did. I have a close friend who's a pastor, and in his family lineage leading up to him, there are six generations of men before him who've cheated on their wives. Six generations. His dad's hidden affair and subsequent divorce from his mom just totally wrecked him. And one of the things that he struggled with as he got older is that when he looked into the mirror, He saw parts of his dad staring back at him. He started to get this skin condition on his leg, just like his dad had. And these things would make him freak out. And he'd have this spiritual attack that said, you're going to end up just like him. You are destined to walk in the failures of your father. And he talks about how a verse from Romans called him out of this fear. Romans 8, 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is the good news of the gospel. If you are united to God through faith in Christ, you are no longer destined to be conformed to the image of your earthly father or mother. But now you are destined to conform into the image of his Son, Jesus you have new blood spilling through your veins now, and it is more powerful than the blood that's mixed with sin and brokenness that you inherited. First Peter 1.18 says this beautifully, we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We have been saved out of futility and foolishness and ransomed to no longer have to re- repeat the same failures. That's such good news for those of us in Christ. So, some of us are parents in the room, uh, all of us are kids. So, the question for all of us is what are we doing with the red that we've inherited? What are we doing with our junk? When it comes to what's been passed down to us, Hebrews 12 says that generally our parents did the best they could. Some of us received all kinds of beauty and goodness and praise God for that. But for those of you who have received a lot of brokenness and pain, here are three ways that we can respond as we wrap up. The first is live in denial. You can act like it has no impact on us. Just kick the, the can further down the road and deal with it someday or let your kids deal with it. Number two, you can operate from a victim mentality. We can blame everything in our lives on what was passed down to us. We can refuse responsibility for our own stuff. And thus, we continue to perpetuate pain in other people's lives because we are unwilling to do the difficult work of repenting and healing. Or lastly, number three, we can accept God's discipline as an invitation to freedom. All of us learned unhelpful things through our family of origin. All of us. Some of you endured incredibly hard things that had a big effect on you. All of us are sinners. It can be complicated. But for all of us, the invitation into God's family is an invitation to leave behind the sin and pain and foolishness that courses through our family bloodlines. To accept God's benevolent training and discipline in our lives, knowing that the purpose is to redeem us, to free us from generational bondage and conform us into the image of His Son Jesus, who died to save us. So I'll leave you with an encouraging word from Hebrews 12, verse 7. Here's what it says It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And what beautiful news for us as we walk through our personal wars with sin and indwelling weakness and generational brokenness. At a critical time, David did not treat his sons as sons, and it had devastating effects. By grace, God will never do that for you and I who are in Christ. He will never abdicate his responsibility to train our characters He will never cease to treat us as sons or daughters, never grow weary of holding out the long-term vision of maturity and wholeness he has for each of you and working tirelessly to get us there even when we don't particularly enjoy the process. God is treating you as a son, as a daughter. Christian, I have no better news for you than that. He is committed to teaching you to live like you were his child. And leaning into this and submitting to this sometimes difficult work is the only way we'll be free from the sin and pain we were given. It's the only way we'll break those red waterfalls. And Lord willing, pass down far less than we were given. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your your gift of Jesus uh, to redeem us um, from the curse of sin that we've all inherited. From our, per- our first parents all the way back to Adam and Eve, thanks that you heal us and free us and restore us and redeem us. Thanks that it's only through the sacrifice of your son that we are adopted and invited into your family where we can be made whole and forgiven and restored and redeemed and all the broken parts of us can be put back together. Father, you're, you're good. Uh, help us to, to see your work in our lives as, as training us to live in your family and to act like your kids all for our good and for your glory. We love you so much. Amen.